to have the folks on s'mores, Professor Barbara George, taking the position here with us. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who may not know, uh, Professor George holds the McCormick Character Secrets Student at uh, Princeton University. Uh, this was the uh, chair originally held by Woodrow Wilson, and uh, he celebrated chair of Princeton. In addition to that, he served as Dean of the Madison Program in the American Ideals and Institutions, and uh, was a great friend of, of Franklin, so we're just thrilled to have you back, Professor George. Well, thank you, uh, Jason. It's to be back. I believe this is my third visit. It might be my fourth, but it's at least my third. Uh, and it's always wonderful to be welcomed back into this uh, vibrant community of faith. Well, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, tonight, uh, our goal is to have a, a wide ranging interview where we'll cover uh, a number of different topics. Uh, we're going to focus on your own heart and mind, uh, talk about uh, the state of the academy, the political world, as well as the church. And It's increasingly difficult to do, uh, not just at my own institution, which is in pretty good shape in this area uh, by comparison with most other institutions, but at institutions around the country. And uh, for the same reason that it's increasingly difficult to do, it's increasingly important uh, to do. We've all watched on television or heard about or read online about the incidents of um, violence uh, shouting down of speakers, disinviting of speakers uh, at colleges and universities around the country. Uh, Yale has even now, uh, the Buckley Society, the William F. Buckley Society at Yale has, uh, has an annual disinvitation dinner, <laughs> black tie affair at which they, uh, they invite uh, people who've been disinvited from, uh, from Yale or other universities around the country as speakers to uh, come and celebrate their being disinvited. Uh, but it's a bad situation, and you won't have any difficulty guessing what's behind it all. Uh, why, do, why are speakers shouted down? Why are people disinvited? Why uh, are speeches uh, disrupted? Uh, why have we even had, in the cases of Evergreen State University and Middlebury College, violence, literal violence? The, uh, the victim of the violence, Allison Stanger, uh, at, um, at Middlebury, uh, was concussed. She suffered a concussion, uh, which took her two years to recover from. Uh, she's, she has finally recovered. I've gotten to know her now. I, I didn't know her before the incident, but uh, she's recovered. So even violence. What's behind it? It's obvious what's behind it. Groupthink. Conformism. The lack of any significant diversity of perspective or viewpoint on campuses. This has created a suffocating environment. Now, 
it would be a problem no matter what the viewpoint is. I don't have any problem with dogma. As a Christian, you can imagine I don't have a problem with dogma. I do have a problem with dogmatism for Christians or anybody else. Uh, and there's dogmatism at colleges and universities up and down, east and west, north and south. Uh, now, it happens that the particular dogma these days is overwhelmingly a secular or secularist progressive dogma. Dissent from that dogma is penalized. It's not just that speakers are disinvited or they're shouted down or they're disrupted or even attacked violently. Uh, it's that uh, people have been made to live in fear, including students who are very sensitive to uh, how they're thought of by their peers, are, meant to, are, are made to live in fear that if they dissent, they will be vilified. Uh, they will be canceled. Uh, cancel culture is a real thing. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with that expression, as I wasn't until a couple of months ago, Google it. We live in this wonderful age when you can look it up. It's a real thing, cancel culture. Uh, since there's nothing new under the sun, you might know it as shunning but uh, it's an attempt to erase a person from the uh, community for their thought crimes. And increasingly, the particular variant of secularist progressivism that is dominant is one that is intolerant of Christianity and Christian morality in particular. So even students who might be tempted to question just question, tempted to question the dogmas of liberal secularism, are fearful that the consequences, the personal and professional consequences of their doing it would be devastating. And so they hold back. And very often when you hold back, when you go silent, you put yourself on a trajectory to, if I can invoke George Orwell here, on the trajectory to loving Big Brother, to actually believing what you have been silently resisting, but nevertheless coming uh, to believe. So, this gets us to Jason's question. What do we do about it? Uh, well, I'm in a position as a professor and a tenured professor um, uh, at a place like Princeton to do a little something about it. And that is to defy it. The most important thing I can do is lead by example. My defiance of the norms of what used to be known as political correctness, I guess we today are coming to call it wokeness, uh, my defying the, um, the norms of wokeness in a very public way, sometimes flamboyantly, um, uh, is I think the most important thing I can do to encourage my students to question uh, these dogmas. Uh, at the same time, uh, in my teaching, it's very important for me to set a good example in another way, and that is not to replace indoctrination into liberal secularism with indoctrination into Christian conservatism or Christian uh, orthodoxy. University is not Sunday school. I have no problem with Sunday school. I have no problem with catechism class. It has a place. So it has places here. It's not at Princeton University or Harvard University or Middlebury College or Evergreen State. My job is to expose my students, as best I can, to the range of reasonable and responsible points of view on issues on which reasonable people of goodwill, 
in a country like ours, a divided, pluralistic country like ours, disagree. The trouble is very few professors in courses or disciplines that touch on hot button issues are willing to do that. Sometimes they're, they, they, they're afraid to do it. Sometimes they just don't want to do it because they're indoctrinating rather than teaching. My job is to teach. So I don't want to um, uh, respond in kind to the tendency of so many liberal secularist professors to uh, indoctrinate. And yet outside of the classroom, uh, when I'm citizen Robert Dorff, who happens to be a professor at Princeton, I think it's important that I speak very publicly and, and defiantly and set that example. Sometimes, Jason, uh, young people, uh, high school students, college students, young uh, post-college students, are thought of as natural rebels. Have you ever heard people talk that way? Or young people are natural rebellion. They go through a rebellion stage. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> young people are not natural rebels. Young people are natural conformists. If you doubt that, just put yourself in the mind of a 16-year-old or a 19-year-old who suddenly discovers he's wearing the wrong tennis shoes. <laughs> Unfashionable clothing. Terror. The temptation is to conform to peer pressure. And that makes it really tough. I, I uh, am, am learning because I teach a lot of kids who come out of the New York private schools, private high, Dalton and places like that. I'm learning that the situation is even worse in secondary education than it is in higher education. I mean, the oppressive, suffocating environment of groupthink at these places, um, some, of the, some of the most prominent public high schools, and then the, the boarding schools, the Andovers and the Exeters and the St. Paul's and the Grottons and the Choates, and places like Dalton and other places like that here in New York. It is truly suffocating, and, and I will get messages. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a magnet for messages from high school students and college students. You know, they easily find my email, I guess, to tell me about what it's like for them as I'm the only evangelical Christian, I'm the only Catholic, I'm the only pro-life person, I'm the only this or that in my school. Now, what they don't realize is they're not the only, right? And I know this because I've gotten three emails from other kids. <laughs> but since nobody is willing to reveal these facts about themselves and their, their beliefs. They don't even find uh, each other. Part of why I built the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions was to make my university be true to its own stated publicity, your university too, to its own stated publicity as a place that welcomes robust civil dialogue where Students are not indoctrinated, but exposed to the range of responsible, reasonable points of view, where, where business is conducted in the proper currency of intellectual discourse, giving reasons, arguments, uh, evidence. Um, we have students associated with the Madison program as undergraduate fellows who are on the left, and many who are on the right. They're welcome equally, and they're welcome to speak. And if they're in my classes or the classes of uh, colleagues who are sympathetic, some of, some of whom are associated in one way or another with the Madison program, the readings they will do will range from writings by Peter Singer, who defends infanticide, the morality of infanticide, to writings by the late Elizabeth Fox Genovese, who's fiercely pro-life. 
Um, that's what I want. I, it's not my job, even on issues I care about, like the life issues. It's not my job to tell my students what to think. It's no other professor's job to tell them what to think. It's to teach them how to think more deeply, more critically, and for themselves. They've got to, we've got to transform them into the kids who, to keep with the metaphor, are willing to wear the unfashionable sneakers, are willing to speak up in favor of views that they have come to hold that are unpopular um, uh, at, at the moment. This can be done, but it is increasingly difficult. Students are fearful, especially in the age of social media. Someone will go online and say you're a bigot. Someone will go online, you're a homophobe. Someone will go online, you're a, you're a racist. And then your reputation is destroyed, and there's nothing you can do about it. And they worry about it following them professionally. Um, students like the ones I teach are extremely ambitious. They want to be, they want high-paying jobs, which is good, which is fine. I'm for that, as long as they contribute some money back to the Madison Public. They, they want high social standing. They want status in their community. They want to be important people in public life. All fine. But they're not the most important things. Those pale in importance to things like family. And they pale in importance, importance to things like thinking for yourself, being your own person, having intellectual integrity, as well as all the other forms, moral integrity. Those are the really important things. And we try to we try to teach that by exposing them to the greatest thinkers and teachers of mankind who all have converged on that basic idea, whether we're talking about Socrates or Jesus, uh, any of the great teachers of mankind. They, they, they all realize that wealth, social status, uh, being regarded as an important person, having influence in public affairs, having power, those things can be very good because you can do good things with them, but they are secondary. They're derivative. They're not what's most important. Even your reputation. It's wonderful to have a good reputation. It's great to be liked. I'd rather be liked than not liked most days. But if the cost of being liked is your integrity, if the cost of being liked is you're not speaking the truth, or you're silent when you should be speaking, it's not worth it. End of sermon. Surprised and encouraged. Um, discouraged a little at some people who did not come aboard, but more encouraged than discouraged because I got some surprises about who did come on board, especially people from the left. Well, let me talk a bit about, the, since you've kindly introduced it, talk a bit about the uh, statement. The statement uh, was issued. Cornell and I decided uh, to uh, issue it. Uh, we, we've been teaching together at Princeton for a long time. We're extremely... Close friends, um, we we see the world different politically, but we're both Christian believers, and we have a lot uh, in common, especially on those questions I was talking about a moment ago about what's really important in life and what's secondary and less less important. But uh, we decided to issue the statement in the wake of the attack on Allison Stanger and Charles Murray at Middlebury. Uh, both of us were shocked 
that it had actually come to the point of physical violence. We knew the situation was bad. Now, now, now Cornell's thinking politically would be more in line with the people who attacked Charles Murray and Alison Stanger, but he completely disagrees with them on freedom of speech, robust civil dialogue, tolerance for opinions that we disagree with. In those ways, Cornell would count as a classical liberal. What we're talking about today is a classical liberal, otherwise known these days as a conservative, even though politically he would be uh, somewhat on the progressives. He's a supporter of Bernie Sanders, he's a socialist, he's the honorary chairman of Democratic Socialists uh, of America. But both of, both of us were shocked. We knew the situation was bad. We are shocked that it came to violence. And then shortly after that, Evergreen State uh, happened. But in the interim, as I recall the chronology, we decided we're, we're gonna just gonna speak on this. We're gonna speak together. Man of the left, man of the right. We're gonna speak together. And um, we wanted to make a particular point that both of us believed had been neglected. And that is that freedom of speech should be honored not as what the great English philosopher John Stuart Mill called an abstract right. Mill didn't endorse this, but he called it an abstract right. Most libertarian defenses of freedoms like freedom of speech or freedom of religion count them as just abstract rights. You just have them. Or fairness requires that, that uh, you know, my right to swing my fist ends at your nose. Or that I have the right to be a libertarian or be a socialist or, or be a Republican or be a Democrat. It's just a matter of fundamental fairness. We agree as society that I'll let you do what you want in return you let me do what it was a social contract and so forth. Both Cornell and I, uh, like Mill actually, uh, reject that in favor of the belief that basic civil liberties including freedom of speech uh, are grounded in human goods. And the particular good that freedom of speech on campuses serves is the cause of truth seeking. There's an old error which um, lines up free speech or tries to ground free speech in the idea that there's no real truth anyway, so no one should be able to shut anybody else up. That's a really bad argument for freedom of speech, bad in the sense that it doesn't work. Not just that it's not persuasive to people, it's not logically a good argument. The argument for freedom of speech is not that there is no truth and therefore everybody should say what they want. The argument for freedom of speech is we need freedom of speech if we are to get at the truth, if we're to debate each other and get at the get at the truth. Look at it this way. Every person in this room and every person in this vast city and every person on the face of the earth, I submit to you, you quarrel with me if you like, currently holds some false beliefs. If, if there's somebody who actually thinks he doesn't hold, that his, his view of himself is, he, he's confident that he holds no false beliefs at the moment, I'd like to meet that person. <laughs> We all know some of our beliefs are false. So you say, well, why don't you change them? Because we don't know which ones they are. So that immediately tells us something. How am I gonna move from error to truth? If truth is good, if truth is worth having, and not just instrumentally, but intrinsically, truth is the good we're pursuing. How do we move toward the truth, a greater grasp of the truth, or the fullness of truth? whether it's the truths of the Christian faith or truths about science or truths about history, unless we 
allow someone to challenge us, provide reasons, make arguments, present evidence. If you shut it down, we're stuck permanently in our errors. Who wants to be there? So Cornell and I wanted to defend free speech, not as an abstract right, but as a right grounded in human goods. Uh, it is a technical and very misleading term for this in political theory. Uh, those of you who've studied, uh, for example, um, the work of the late John Rawls, it's called perfectionism. The perfectionist view is the view that says rights are grounded in goods. So the right to freedom of speech is grounded in the good, at least on campus, of truth and truth seeking. You need, you need a university needs freedom of speech so that it can fulfill its mission of truth seeking, students, faculty, and so forth. Uh, but we wanted to make an additional point, and that is something similar, analogous, can be said about freedom of speech in democratic cultures. Here, we need freedom of speech, not as an abstract right, but as a right grounded in the good of justice. If we're going to govern ourselves justly for the sake of the common good, honoring true rights, respecting human dignity, all of the, Cornell and I, and I may have disagreements about what that concretely requires, but we agree that that should be the goal. If you're gonna do that, you need the freedom to communicate with each other, to argue, to persuade. That's how democracy works. Hence our statement, democracy, truth-seeking, truth democracy, and freedom of thought and expression. So we made the case uh, in Brief Compass. Uh, it was just a couple of pages, maybe 750 words, something like that. Um, and we just thought, well, we'll put it out. We're a couple of technologically uh, challenged guys, <laughs> but with some help from our friends, we got it out there uh, on the internet and uh, opened it for signatures, uh, especially encouraging academic people to sign to see what we would get, and the fish were biting. Uh, we uh, were gratified that uh, we, in relatively short order, had about 5,000, close to 5,000 signatures. If I recall correctly, don't hold me to the figure, but this would be close, 55 university presidents, including from some, some surprising places like the University of California at Berkeley, Carol Crist signed, Nathan Hatch at, 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 at Wake uh, Forest. Uh, President of the University of California, uh, I'm sorry, University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison, which is a very left-wing, historically very left-wing uh, uh, campus. Um, really gratifying. And then lots of professors, and not just conservatives, and not just Christians, Orthodox Jews, but, uh, but secular uh, people who signed, uh, the famous um, Harvard sociologist, Theta uh, Scotchpole, uh, uh, if I recall correctly, Robert Putnam uh, at Princeton, Robert Cohan. Just a whole lot of, in many cases, extremely distinguished uh, academic uh, people who signed. My most treasured signature was from a man who, who wrote to us to ask if he could sign. Uh, a janitor at a university, if I recall correctly, in Ohio. And he said, um, you know, I, I could agree with this 100%. And you know, I'm not a faculty member or even a student, and, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to sign, but I would love to sign if I could, because I feel as though you know, I'm contributing in my way to, uh, to the educational uh, enterprise. And gosh, we said, are you kidding? Absolutely, we'd be honored to have your signature. And I really do treasure, uh, treasure that, uh, that signature on our, on our statement. Um, we were making a point, we were drawing a line you know, which side are you on here? You know, 
or, or, or do, do you want reform in the direction of greater viewpoint diversity, freedom of speech for the sake of truth seeking, for the sake of democracy? Or do you think truth seeking can survive without that, those freedoms? Democracy can survive without those freedoms. If so, we need to have a conversation. Or maybe you don't want truth seeking, or maybe you don't want democracy. Maybe you think democracy's done, had enough of it. We need some sort of command type political order, an authoritarian type political order, the left or the right. Or maybe you think that there is no such thing as truth, that there's only power, and the important thing is for us and our team and our group and our clan and our tribe to get the power and impose it, use it on, uh, on other people. Um, if that's your view, let's have a conversation uh, about that. But it was gratifying and encouraging to see so many people recognizing the problem and coming down not only for democracy and for truth seeking, but recognizing that freedom is the oxygen that, that, that keeps the, 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 the organism of democracy, the organism of truth seeking in the university alive. Wonderful question, uh, Jason. Uh, let me begin with a commercial advertisement. Uh, uh, in the new issue of the journal National Affairs, that happens to be their 10th anniversary issue. National Affairs is the journal edited by the great Yuval Levin in Washington, D.C. It's the successor to the journal Public Interest, which was edited for many, many years, of course, with great distinction by Irving Kristol. In the new issue, the 10th anniversary issue, uh, my former uh, research assistant and I, Ryan Anderson, have an article called The Baby in the Bathwater. And it's precisely on this issue, uh, you know, what can be gotten rid of, uh, but what needs to be uh, preserved in, broadly speaking, the tradition of liberalism. Now, here I don't mean liberalism as opposed to conservatism. I mean the classical liberal tradition. Liberal in the sense that we talk about liberal arts or civil liberties, uh, that, that, that kind of thing. It's an important debate within the conservative movement uh, today. Some of you will recognize it as featuring in the debate, it's part of the debate between Saurabh Amari and David French. Uh, it, uh, it figures in the debate within some faith uh, traditions going on right now, for example, within Catholicism, between so-called integralists and so-called liberals. Um, it's, it's a very important uh, question. Now, for my part, uh, and the full dress account of this is in the article if you care to read it, but for my part, I don't believe that there is any one single uniquely correct political system, no uniquely correct regime. Much will depend on the history, traditions, uh, social circumstances, sociology, cultural conditions of a particular society at a particular time. But that does not mean that I'm a cultural or moral relativist. I do think that any just regime must include some important principles, including some principles that we can articulate meaningfully in terms of, to use the modern language, rights. 
more broadly, we would call them principles of justice, whether we use White's talk or, or not. So whether the regime is formally democratic, uh, formally aristocratic, formally monarchical, or some mix, which is what ours actually is, some mix of those, whether it is Republican or non-Republican, uh, uh, there are certain principles of justice that have to be observed. But having said all that, I'm a partisan of ours. <laughs> I know it's not the only one, there are other ways to do things. I don't think some principle of justice excludes always and everywhere, under any circumstances, having an established church. Now, I do think that you need respect for freedom of religion everywhere, even if there's an established religion, if it's the Jewish religion in Israel, or if it's an Islamic uh, religion in Pakistan, or if it's the Anglican church in, in England. You still need religious freedom. That's an absolute requirement. Whether to have an established church, that's culturally variable. But I certainly think in our culture, it's wonderful that we don't have one. And I would never want to move in the direction of having one. And I think we've been served very well by not having one. And in particular, I think religion has been served very well by not having an established church. That is not to embrace. In fact, I utterly reject the French, the famous French version of separation of church and state known as laïcité, where religion is driven into the private realm and has no public role. You don't, can't get a Martin Luther King under the French laïcité system. And I think we need more of those. <laughs> or, you know, the abolitionist movement or the women, movement for women's suffrage or uh, for uh, uh, stopping the exploitation of children in labor, women in labor, and so forth. Uh, so I don't want to go that route. But I do like our system's um, principle that no one holds political office in virtue of ecclesiastical appointment or preferment and no one holds ecclesiastical office as a bishop or priest or pastor in virtue of political appointment. This has served us very well. Separation of church and state serves the cause of religious liberty and the common good more generally when it's the institutional separation of church and state. The institutions of the church are separated from the institutions of the state, but not where the state is hostile to them, as in France, or where religion is pushed into the private realm. No, religion belongs everywhere. It's got a very important public role. It's not just on your knees at bedtime, or, or hands uh, together around the table, or, uh, uh, or in, in church or temple, or a synagogue, or a mosque. Uh, it's got to have a public role. France has gone down totally the wrong road here. And yet, I wouldn't want us to go even into the English model with an established church, even if it were my church. Um, in fact, what the Anglican experience teaches us, I think, in England, at least the modern experience, if you're a devout believer and you think that like the culture would be served by having an established church, just make sure it's not yours because the victim is going to be your church because you're going to be under the thumb, you're really going to be the ornament of the state, which is too often how Anglicanism functions in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in England. Where I lived as a non-Anglican Catholic, very happily for five years with my religious freedom totally uh, respected, and I noticed over there it wasn't the Anglicans who wanted to keep the devout, truly religious Anglicans, which are unfortunately very few, uh, but it wasn't though them who wanted to keep the established religion. They realized that the effect of religious establishment on the Anglican uh, communion was enervating, 
it was non-Anglicans who liked the pomp and ceremony and the, you know, the queen is crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury and you know, the, the, all the show that is, uh, is, is put on. So I like our system. I like our constitution. I think we've been extremely well served when we have lived by it. Our problem is we haven't lived by it enough. We don't respect the separation of church and state enough. We, we, are, we fall into the French YCK system under the influence of the Supreme Court driving religion out of public life into the purely private domain. Now, the Supreme Court is currently constituted is moving back toward, I think, what the, is the right position. So I'm, I, I, I see progress there. But we've, we've had a long period of time where the Constitution has been misinterpreted on the question of separation of church and state and, and state as a kind of French YCK model. Uh, we have not lived consistently with our principle of separation of powers, which is a wonderful principle. We have not lived consistently with our principle of federalism. Our problem is not our Constitution. It's a great Constitution. It worked very well for a pluralistic society like ours. But we haven't lived by it enough. And John Adams was right when he said, our Constitution is a Constitution for a moral and religious people and will not serve well any other kind of people. It was designed for people who are not secular. It's designed for religion. Doesn't mean you have to be a religious person. The Constitution protects your right not to be. But it's designed with a certain kind of understanding of human nature, a certain kind of view about human dignity rooted in the scriptural witness in Genesis 1, man is made in the very image and likeness of God. It's, it's made for people with that kind of understanding that's presupposed the Declaration of Independence, the predecessor of the Constitution, sets forth the principles that the Constitution tries to effectuate. We hold these truths that all men are created, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That's just a political expression of the principle of Genesis 1. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. In other words, man is a bearer of a profound, inherent, and equal dignity. And yeah, where we've gone wrong is when we've not lived up to that. Slavery, segregation, today abortion, things where we don't live up to the promise of the Declaration. We don't live up to the true principles of the, of the Constitution. We got a great Constitution. We need to live by it. I'll give you my latest pet peeve. I just published this in, in Politico. Uh, any, any constitutional uh, pe people, people here who've studied the Constitution in classes? Okay, yeah, other, other people? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Okay, so you're gonna be my guinea pig. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is, what this boils down to is what my students call read Professor George's mind. <laughs> what is the most neglected word in the Constitution? What is the word that somehow people miss in the Constitution? You don't have to look very far to find it. It is the first word in the first sentence in the first paragraph of the first article of the Constitution. Just after you get through the preamble, which tells you why we're gonna do what we're gonna do, you get to the point where you're now doing it, you're really establishing the institutions and principles of the nation, and that word is the word all, A-L-L. -L. You know, I, I, my Politico piece just reminds politicians and judges that it's there. You forgot it's there, but it's there. It says all legislative authority under the United States shall be vested in a Congress consisting of a House of Representatives and a Senate. 
Now all means all. All doesn't mean some or even most. All doesn't mean a lot. All means all, 100%. And if, if Congress has all legislative power under the Constitution, in other words, all the legislative power that is free, that is available from the United States. Now, this is a different matter with the states, but, but we're talking about the U.S. government here. All legislative power that Congress has to, that uh, the United States has to confer, it confers on the Congress. That means the president doesn't have any. That means the judiciary doesn't have any. Now we're back to the separation of powers. The president's job not to make law. It's not his job to make law. His job is to faithfully execute that the laws are, faithfully execute the laws that Congress has made. It is certainly not the job of the courts to make law. They're not legislative. Who elected them? It's their job faithfully to apply the words, the principles, enacted by the ratifiers of the Constitution and the legislature. And yet, look at where we find ourselves today. The one institution that doesn't make law is Congress. Presidents, executive, and it's not Republicans or Democrats, it's both. Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, Obama, it's Bush, it's Clinton, it's Trump. Executive orders flying out of the presidents out of the Oval Office, making law. Signing statements, making law. And Congress abdicates its authority. Same thing on the judicial side. Opinion, decision after decision after decision where courts are just manufacturing things. Nowhere in the law, nowhere in the Constitution. They just come with up with this stuff out of the clear blue sky, as if they were across the street in the building with the big dome and the statue on top. But they're not there. They're in the marble temple. And in the marble temple on that side of the street, you're supposed to be applying the law, not making law. But again, Congress advocates. Congress doesn't fight back. And yet our Constitution says all legislative power in the hands. Got to remember, separation of powers means different powers in different institutions. The power to interpret and apply the law, courts. The power to execute the law, president, executive branch. The power to make the laws in the Congress. But just ask any, we, if we go out here, there, there's probably a business or two near here, near the, near the church, right? There's a restaurant or a, um, a, a news shop or something. Uh, you ask them, these regulations and things that you live under. And we'll just talk about the federal ones, not the city of New York or the state, but just the federal ones. Uh, these laws under which you live, or just ask yourself as individuals, the laws under which you live, who, who made them? Just start going through the various things that you have to do. How many were actually made by Congress as opposed to court imposed, or more likely imposed by the federal agencies? Where the courts had, you know, where the where the legislators had simply delegated their delegated away their authority. So uh, this is a hobby horse with, with me. All means all. And the, the the Constitution's framers and ratifiers chose that word deliberately. And by the way, you look at Article Two and Article Three when it when it refers to the uh, e executive power, Article Two, and the uh, judicial power in Article Three you don't find the word all, you just find the definite article, the executive power, the judicial power. I mean, they went out of their way to make clear that all means all, and they see it as necessary to the survival of Republican government. Remember when our founders decided on this Constitution? 
what it was supposed to do, which the Articles of Confederation were proving incapable of doing, was make possible something that human history had never known before, the survival of republican government. We weren't the first republic, but all the others had failed. They'd all fallen into tyranny. They'd all collapsed. Roman Republic, right? The medieval Renaissance city state republic, right? They, they'd, all, they'd all collapsed. Why did they fail? Well, Federalist Number 10 talks about faction being behind the failure of, uh, of republics, and our Constitution was designed with such things as separation of powers in order to prevent that from happening, to give us a Republican government that would survive. And what is Republican government? Lincoln at Gettysburg talked about how, what was at risk for all eternity, for all, throughout the globe, was government of, by, and for the people, right? Government of the people. Why did we fight the war, Lincoln says? Why did we suffer, would it endure 750,000? Wasn't quite that many by Gettysburg, which is 1863, but even by then, several hundred thousand. Uh, deaths and other casualties. Why was Lincoln willing to do it? So that government of the people by the people shall not perish from the North American subcontinent? No, from the earth. Because it had always failed before, and Lincoln figured that if it failed here, this would be it. People would say, you know, Republican government just can't work. It's a nice idea, but it's a dream. It's always failed, no use trying that. The best we can do is hope for a benign authoritarian regime, a despot of some of some sort. But what is Republican government? Well, government, all government is government of the people, right? All good government, even if it's government by a benign despot, a good king, let's say, is government for the people. The distinctive thing about Republican government is it's government by the people. By them through their elected representatives not by judges that they didn't elect, and not even by presidents whom we do not directly elect, for very good reasons. I'll defend the Electoral College. We choose our, the electors, the, 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 the electors in the Electoral College choose the president. This is deliberately not a Democrat. Right now, the Democrats are on the losing end. If it were the other way around, the Republicans would be the ones complaining, but uh, the, the complaint now is that the Electoral College is undemocratic. Darn right! wasn't supposed to be. The democratic core is where all legislative power is. The reason we fight so much over presidencies is we allow our presidents to be lawmakers. They don't have any power. All legislative power belongs in the, how did you get me off on this? <laughs> anyway, you get my, <laughs> you get my point. Political scientists put it uh, in different language, make the same point. They distinguish values issues from valence issues. Um, you can have some pretty hot debates over valence issues. 
like what's the best way to get ourselves out of a depression or recession? The Keynesian model or the Hayekian model, for example? Uh, that's a valence question. Uh, what's the best way to fight the Soviet Union in the Cold War? We both agree Soviet Union's bad. We don't want them to win. We want them to lose. Uh, uh, we, we don't want to lose our uh, freedom. We don't want more countries to fall under Soviet domination and tyranny. Now, how do we get there? Do we build a, uh, a uh, missile defense system or do we not? That's fundamentally a valent issue. Value, you can have hot debates over them. They're pretty intense. But if you really want intense issues to debate, you move to the values issues, where you no longer have a common morality. And now you're fighting about slavery or not slavery. That's not a valence issue. Either all human beings are created equal, all human beings are bearers of profound inherent and equal dignity, all must be treated alike in dignity or not. Or they're inferiors and superiors based on race or whatever. Not a valence issue, it's a values issue. That's the kind of thing that produces civil wars. And we no longer have the consensus that we seem to have achieved uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War and then the long struggle against segregation. We had a very brief period where there seemed to be the common Judeo-Christian morality still intact and where we had pretty much settled in the right way, I think, the question of race. But then comes the 60s, the sexual revolution in particular, the drug culture, uh, the emergence of life issues like euthanasia, abortion, uh, and now a whole new set of values issues dividing the country. The polarization today is fundamentally over, over values issues. And, and my, the way I put it that Jason was quoting was, you know, we're not just fighting over means to agreed upon ends, how to get out of the depression or recession, how to create economic growth, how to defeat the Soviet Union or at least stand up against the Soviet, deter or contain uh, the Soviet uh, empire. No, now we're fighting about values issues like um, uh, is a tiny child in the womb a precious member of the human family to be protected and cherished and, and loved uh, equally with mom so that we're, we're, we're loving both, we're reaching out to women in need and, and caring for both mother and child or is there a fundamental conflict, it's mother or child, we're gonna dehumanize the child, say you're not a child, you're a fetus or you're this or you're that. Uh, or you're a clump of cells, or you're a blob of protoplasm, or not. It's a fundamental values issue. Now, when people agree, I'm sorry, when people disagree that deeply and that profoundly about values questions, then you have the question, what holds the society together? What's the glue of social cohesion? It's one thing if we are bound together by our common, say, Christian beliefs the Judeo-Christian belief, biblical belief, or Abrahamic belief. It's another thing where we don't have that luxury because our neighbors, good people, but as far as we can tell, very, very profoundly misguided on fundamental issues, value issues. We love them. We want to be good neighbors to them, but we can't simply say, that's fine. You go ahead, do that. Own the slave, kill the unborn child. We can't do that. Now, so what's gonna bind us together? The answer, I think, is our commitment to basic classical liberal 
today known as conservative, procedural and constitutional principles. We do agree on the Constitution. We do agree on the separation of powers. We do agree that we're going to live with the results of elections. We do agree that we don't call out the military against our uh, adversaries. We do agree that uh, we respect each other's basic freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of association. We do agree on due process of law. We do agree on the equal protection principle, subject to the debate we have about who counts as among the community that commonly protected that gets the protection of the equal protection principle. Another way of asking that is how thin can the agreement be and still provide the glue? What I'm willing to bet, but what my uh, more conservative critics are not willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that even as thin as that agreement is, it's still enough to get us through without the whole thing falling apart and with a civil war or some sort of dissolution of the country or breakdown of the, the, even those thin principles. I think we can sustain them. I wish we had more, but I think if, we, if, if, we're, if we're at least dedicated to those principles, we can still live together and sort out the values issues by the procedures agreed upon and set forth in the Constitution and basic principles of law of the, of the country. Now, I might be wrong about that. I do have more conservative critics uh, who say, no, it's not enough. That you, don't, you need substantive agreement on the common good, at least more substantive agreement on the common good than I think you need, that, that it can't just be procedural stuff. You need, you need at least some shared, in a culture like ours, some shared biblical or shared Christian uh, principles. Now, in a way, the dispute between me and my more conservative critics isn't, is more apparent than real because, of course, I want to use our freedoms, basic constitutional principles, the procedures, obeying the rules, to persuade our fellow citizens to protect unborn babies, to preserve marriage or restore marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife, uh, to, uh, to fight back against the various plagues, the drug plague uh, the, and, and, and the pornography plague uh, that we have in this country, to come up with a, a sensible uh, understanding of our stewardship of creation, uh, sensible rules for preventing exploitation, uh, a generous but orderly system of immigration. I want to I use our freedoms to advocate for the kinds of things that a Christian would, be, would, would advocate for. This is not imposing Christianity on other people, but it's fighting for what we believe God wants and what we believe is defensible as a matter of basic justice, natural law. Just doing what Martin Luther King does or did, and, and, and explained and defended in his letter from Birmingham jail. So it's not as if I want to just sit on our hands and be completely satisfied with uh, agreement at a very thin level, but I think it's enough to carry on and we can be about the business of persuading our fellow citizens. I want to be in the game. I'm willing to play by those rules. The problem is, so often people are not willing to play by those rules. They want to shut down speech, like in universities. You know, you, not only do you not only do you not do you not win this battle, we're not going to let you in the game. We're not going to let you advocate for the gender binary, so-called gender binary. I don't believe in gender, but the, the sex binary. Um, well, 
If that's going to be the position, then you, you're eliminating the possibility even of that thin agreement that I think we could sustain ourselves on. But if you're going to knock out my freedom of speech, my other basic civil liberties, my constitutional rights, the very possibility of my even being able to make the argument to persuade my fellow citizens, no, then we can't live together. You gotta agree on the Constitution. We're gonna do it this way. I'm gonna respect yours. You know, if you think a man can have a baby, I'm gonna let you, you make your argument, fine, I wanna hear it. I'm not gonna shut you down. I'm not gonna say, oh, it's terrible. She said a man can have a baby, you know, put her in jail. I'm not gonna do that. But you, you gotta respect that in me and in our fellow citizens who believe stuff like, you know, men don't have babies. Well, again, I, I believe the common ground can be, I hope it can be, I have my critics, but I hope it can be basic civil liberties principles, yeah. such as those enshrined in the Constitution. And here I don't just mean the Bill of Rights, I mean federalism, and I mean separation of powers, I mean the idea of the national government as a government of delegated and enumerated and therefore limited uh, powers. I think it's those constitutional principles and procedures and institutions that are the common ground. And my, my real objection is when those get corrupted or people try to deny Christians and others their right of access to those institutions or their right to act on those principles, shut down their speech, shut down their assembly, uh, exclude them from uh, institutions. That's just wrong. It's fundamentally wrong at the constitutional level. But it's the way the game is played at a lot of places in our society today, and I think Christians are absolutely right and shouldn't be in the least embarrassed to assert their constitutional rights against that. Just as we should hope other people would, who are not Christians should assert their constitutional rights, get equal constitutional rights to ours, that everybody should defend the Constitution. Best way to do that is defend your own rights. It's the best way. So that's number one. Now number two, what do you do with your rights? Well, you, you exercise them to advance the causes, substantive causes, that you believe justice and the common good require. We've got a view of human rights. That view is that human beings have rights simply in virtue of their humanity, not in virtue of anything they have achieved. 
Not age, not size, not stage of development, not condition of dependency, just does not say sex, not, not, not ethnicity, not sex, uh, not uh, race. Um, you're just, there's certain rights you have in virtue of your humanity, okay? But when we say that, then the question becomes, well, who is a human being? And we have a view about that too. Now that view, as it happens, does not come from our religion directly. It comes from science. We, we, we can understand who is a human being by scientific criteria. And we just want our right to act on that, to assert that, to get in the fight. I, if you want to have a debate about when life begins, I'm the last guy who's going to come with the Bible. I'm going to come with about a half dozen leading texts in human embryology and developmental biology, and I'm going to win. So on that one, they have an argument. I mean, this is the reverse of what's ordinarily thought. I mean, when, when it comes to the debate over nascent human life, early human life, embryonic and fetal life, uh, there's this goofy thought out there that Christians believe what they believe on the basis of faith, and the so-called pro-choice people believe what they believe on the basis of science. This is exactly the reverse of the truth. Christians believe what they believe on the basis of science, and the pro-choice people have some metaphysical or quasi-religious or ideological theory of why a developing human being in the womb is actually not a human being. I don't know what they think it is, a potato, a rock, an alligator, but they think it's not a human being. But, but I'm, I'm sorry, it just does not bear up under scientific scrutiny. So the, here we're not, we're not imposing religion on anybody. We're not even imposing an ethical view on anybody. We're just saying, look, you gotta live by science. Why, you shouldn't be science deniers. Now, we have, we have some real challenges as Christians. Um, the virtue that is most needed and the virtue that is most wanting in the Christian community is the virtue of courage. It takes courage to stand up today and speak the truth out loud and in public. And that's because my students are right. You can pay a price for that, personally, with your friends, family members. You can pay a price professionally, you know, in your, in your firm or in your, in, your, in your job or in your profession or in your career. You know, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a, uh, in, in the insurance business, run a hedge fund, plumbing, no matter what you do, you can, you can pay a price. And look, we human beings, we don't want to pay the price. We, we would prefer a Christianity where, well, I'll put it to you this way. So I, I sometimes picture the apostles when they're getting down to business here with the Lord and, and uh, they want to know, well, okay, so you know, what, do we have to, what do we have to do here? And he says, oh, you've got to go out and you've got to preach the gospel. You've got a great commission. You know, it's a gospel to all nations. Ah, we can do that. We can do that. Now, uh, what's our, we're going to be salesmen, right? Yeah, we're going to be salesmen. We're going to sell the gospel. Uh, what are we offering? What do we, what, do, what do we tell them they get in return for signing up, joining up? Uh, I mean, should they join because, well, you know, you join to be rich. You join to be famous. You join to be powerful. You know, you join to be liked. You join to be popular. What's Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. 
Now, who wants that? Do you like to sell that message? If you're a salesman, it's a good product. It's not a good product. Because that's not naturally what the, the carnal self uh, wants, and that's understandable. So you know, it, it really does take an enormous amount of courage to bear witness. And in a way, it takes more courage to bear witness to the gospel in its concrete moral implications than in its formal uh, terms. It is safer for me, and would be safer for you at a university to say, let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, let me tell you about his ministry in Galilee. And let me tell you about his miracles. Many might not want to hear it, but you're not, you know, nobody's going nobody's to uh, demand that you be kicked off campus. But if you say, let me tell you about the equal dignity of every member of the human family beginning with the child in the womb. Mm. Or let me tell you about why we ought not to engage in promiscuous sexual relations or shack up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or enter into a homosexual uh, partnership. Now, you're not going to be tolerated. Now, it really, takes, it really takes courage. Now, not that you have to get up and get right in people's faces. You have to talk about this all the time or it's got to be the first thing that you say to somebody. I'm not saying that. But there's got to be a time, if we're serious about our faith, if we're serious about loving our fellow human beings, which means giving them the truth, the liberating, life-giving, saving truth, the whole truth, there has to come a point when we're willing to speak up for these things that are, could cost us, or probably will uh, cost us. It, it takes courage, and I suppose in all of human history, courage has always been in short supply. But it's certainly in short supply today, and we and we and we really we really need it now. How do you get courage? Well, I I happen to think that behind courage is faith and hope, and of course the third theological virtue of love. You gotta love somebody an awful lot to be willing to take the risk of having them hate you. You really have to love them, and usually we don't love our neighbor enough to be willing to, to do that. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? But we usually don't. We really have to love them. And that means you know, we, we, we can't despair. We need the virtue of hope, the theological virtue of, of hope. In a way, it kind of sustains the love. The greatest of these is love, but you can't have the love without the hope, and you can't have the hope without the faith. There's got to be some faith behind it that this, this really is the life-giving, liberating message, that the gospel has that, and that the gospel isn't just the, the specific history and teachings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's stuff on the surface there. It's, it's the whole story, the whole story of the human good, of human well-being, of man made in the image and likeness of, of God, of, of, of having a profound dignity which has to be protected against the things that undermine it. Gets us into the moral realm inexorably and quickly. So we need these, we need these virtues if we're to have courage. And we, and we need to find ways to inculcate those virtues in our, in our young men and women who are especially vulnerable because they, peer pressure means so much 
Stephen. <laughs> well, let me uh, let me open it up to the floor for a couple questions, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up in a few minutes. But any questions for the presentation? Yes, sir. Well, Mr. Adams, can you share with us what the the best piece of life wisdom? Yes, yes, I can. I was six years old. I can barely remember it, and I'm not sure if I actually remember it, or I remember it being told to me as what my mother said to me when we were on the uh, uh, sidewalk, uh, or whatever, not sidewalk, but the little walkway up to our house as she was, um, uh, sending me off in my father's car to my first day at school. So either I remember the incident or, or remember very early on being told about the incident where my mother said to me, always think for yourself. Don't let other people do your thinking for you. In other words, don't be a conformist. Don't just, and you know, whether I actually am remembering it from six years old or remembering, remembering it when I was eight or nine, which is possible. Either way, it was inculcated by my mother really deeply into me. And so people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, you, he's a contrarian. Uh, no, I, I'm not a contrarian. I don't, I don't say the opposite thing just to say the opposite thing. But I, I often find myself saying the opposite thing because I believe the opposite thing to what, to what happens to be the, the, the dominant orthodoxy in the little part of the universe that I occupy. But, but that was inculcated in me to think for myself, to to not just go along with whatever the dominant view is. The, the dominant view isn't necessarily wrong. You shouldn't be a contrarian, be a disagree just to disagree, but it might be wrong, and it's not a guarantee that it's right, so you gotta, you gotta think it through, and uh, that, that I've always tried to do. Probably the second most formative thing for me happened many years later, I was probably about 20, in, or 19 or 20, in my sophomore year in college, I was an undergraduate at Swarthmore, and that's when I uh, uh, took a, a perfectly nice course, good course, uh, not special, but perfectly good course, uh, survey course in political theory. Uh, it began with Plato and went up through Rawls. Uh, and it was in reading Plato, it was reading Plato's dialogue, The Gorgias, that uh, the light bulb went off over my head. And uh, for the first time in my life, I even entertained the proposition and quickly came to affirm it, that the reason that we should value the truth is most fundamentally not instrumental because of what you can do with it, but rather our most fundamental reason. Well, truth has lots of instrumental value, but more fundamentally than any of that is the intrinsic value of truth. Now, I don't know why this had never been presented to me. I'd never entertained the idea of truth as an inherent enrichment of the human being. Now, as a Christian, you, we, we, should, we should naturally understand that because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and it's not just instrumental. It's intrinsic to the, 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 human, the human person, the fulfillment of the human, human person. But it was engaging that ancient Greek who I, I, I 
feel almost physically like Plato took me by the scruff of the neck and forced me to look at something I'd been looking all around and, and, and missing, and, and there it was in front of me, that what we want to do, what, the reason we're after the truth is for its inherent enrichment, for its own sake, not just getting ahead, getting money, getting power, getting influence, even if you mean to use all those things for good. It's, it's the truth for, for its own sake. And uh, that set me on a path I never would have imagined going on. It, it, it gave me my vocation as a scholar and teacher. That doesn't mean that everybody who loves truth needs to be a scholar or teacher. God calls you where he calls you. So, so for some people it's hedge funds, some people it's plumbing, some people, for me it was the life of scholarship. But I wouldn't have known that. I, I wouldn't have ever even cursorily entertained the thought of being a professor. I would have thought, who would want to be a professor? What do you do? You know, you study Shakespeare and teach other people Shakespeare? What's the point? But of course I was missing the point of the intrinsic value of knowledge, whether it's about Shakespeare or theology or philosophy or science. It's the vocation that a, that a physicist has, a vocation that a literature scholar has, a vocation that uh, you know, a, a constitutional scholar or a moral political philosopher has, and it became my vocation for that reason. So, so I, would, I would tell every kid when he's six years old, think for yourself, and then I would, uh, when, when a kid turns 19, I'd introduce him to Plato. I can only think of one. You know, and I don't know what people make of it who, and by the way, you know, my, my master in that, Plato, thought that too. Now, he was an ancient Greek polytheistic society. And if you look at his dialogues, he does refer frequently to the gods. But notice something else. Some of you have read some of Plato's dialogues, Apology, Euthyphro, Crita, uh, Republic. Notice that he also very frequently refers to God, singular. Or the God. Now, I wonder about and when you look into it, it's interesting. When, when the gods are being invoked or when divinity is being invoked sort of in a, as a formality, he's perfectly content to go along with the city and refer to the gods. But when the concept of divinity is doing any actual work in the argument, any actual analytic work, he tends to go for monotheism. Now, it turns out that this wasn't some great new, when I look into it more closely, thinking I just discovered the world, uh, I realized that I didn't discover it at all. I mean, it was known to the, the church fathers, people like St. Augustine, some of whom were so astonished by Plato's understanding of these issues that they explored only in the end to finally reject them. But they considered two competing, two theories. One, that somehow Plato had gotten hold of uh, uh, a text of the Hebrew scriptures. How otherwise could he have known? How could he have known what the other pagans didn't know? The other theory was, could Plato have been given a special revelation by God of the essential content of the Hebrew revelation? And the church fathers you know, all agreed in the end that he didn't. But man, it's amazing, isn't it? That, uh, 
that he had he had somehow gotten gotten hold of hold of this. And of course, he was a complete pain in the neck to so his teacher. It wasn't just his teacher Socrates. You know, Plato's really flying in the face of the norms of Athenian pagan society, including, by the way, their norms about sexual morality. Uh, you know, he, he's a real fuddy-duddy. He's a, he's a, you know, he'd, he'd be considered a real right-wing evangelical nut on those, on those issues by, his, by the pagans of his, uh, his day. So nothing changes. Uh, we're kind of back where, uh, where he was. So yeah. Uh, introduce young people to Plato. One big challenge that we face, and it's connected to the deficit of courage, is the temptation to um, baptize baptized secularist progressivist ideology, secularist progressive ideology, and pr pretend that we're Christians. So we've lost the substance of the Christian faith. We keep the forms of the Christian faith, but our substantive beliefs are a different religion, a pseudo-religion. Uh, now, now I've noticed recently a lot of people are just kind of giving up the facade or the pre pretense and are just figuring out that they're no, really not Christians anymore, if they ever were. But there's still an even larger group that wants to, you know, have the baby and the bathwater. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, uh, they, they want to consider themselves Christian. They want to observe the forms of Christianity, but the substance of their views, they just want to go along with secular progressivism. It's a, it's a big problem because, of course, that means buying into what I think you have in mind by relativism. It's a funny kind of relativism, though, because contemporary secular progressivism, in one sense, is relativistic. In another, it is brutally absolutist and moral, uh, moral uh, uh, imperialist. There's only one way. There's only one. It's our way, you know. Uh, they don't think that it's all relative whether men can have babies. They think men can have babies. And if you don't think men can have babies, you're a bigot, and that's wrong. I mean, you be very moralistic. There's no relativism there. In fact, I wish they'd go back to being moral relativists. It was a lot safer for us back when they were moral relativists. But you know, once they used the doctrine or the ideology of moral relativism to erode the, the formerly uh, intact Judeo-Christian cultural infrastructure, then they could say, oh, did we say all things were relative and there was no such thing as truth? Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't mean that. There is truth, and uh, it's not what used to be regarded as truth. It's, it's 
men can have babies and abortion is a woman's right and on and on and on and on. And on. Um, there's a heavy element of subjectivism to it, obviously. I mean, just take the idea that, that biological um, males can be females or biological females can be males. Obviously, that is subjectivist, and in that sense, it's, it's relative. It's the whole idea is that what you are is the product of what you think. It's not objectively what you are in a way that can be explored by, say, science, as opposed to you know, speculation about uh, your uh, subjective states. Um, now, in my own work, um, both my very theoretical work uh, on political theory, moral and political theory, and my more specific work in practical ethics on issues such as the status of the embryo, marriage, and so forth. And I've written on at both levels. I've done a lot of stuff on specific ethical questions and then more general stuff about political theory. And in all of that work, you might, you might say my inspiration in scripture is from Paul's letter to the Romans where he says that there's a law written on the hearts even of the Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, and it's a law sufficient for accountability and for judgment. Now, in the Christian tradition, and not just the Christian tradition, this really is the um, heritage we draw from the Greeks, from the greatest of the Greek pagan philosophers, especially from Plato and Aristotle, uh, also on the Roman side from people like Cicero, uh, has been known as natural law. And despite the fact that the medievals had a rich and profound understanding of natural law, and the reformers did as well. Sometimes this is, this is misunderstood. You think that, well, Protestants don't have a natural law tradition. Well, read Luther and Calvin, and you'll see that they do. But in the modern period, especially in evangelicalism, but not exclusively, and especially in the period of quietism, there's been the thought that natural law is somehow unchristian that real Christians are just biblical and don't have any belief that there's a law accessible to reason, even for those who don't have the Bible, or a law that helps us to understand biblical teaching, or a law that uh, we can go to where there's not a specific biblical teaching on an issue, like cloning. The Bible doesn't speak about it. Technology wasn't around, you know, to make such a thing even, even possible. Um, the late Carl F. H. Henry, wonderful human being and a great thinker, but you know he fell into this idea that well, you know, the natural law is kind of an unchristian, that's a pagan Greek uh, idea, but it's not. And uh, the way we engage effectively with our secular and secularist uh, fellow citizens is mainly in terms of natural law. Now that does not mean let me be very clear to the videotape. That does not mean we need to be secrets about our being Christian, or secret about our being Christian. Absolutely not. We need to bear public witness to our Christian faith. That does not mean we never quote the Bible. Martin Luther King quoted the Bible all the time. I never failed to cease reminding my, uh, my uh, academic colleagues of this. Martin Luther King constantly quoted uh, uh, the Bible. That's all fine. But we also need to be able to make arguments by appealing to our common human reason, and that's the idea of natural law. I have said countless times, offer is always there. I am prepared to debate any of the issues dividing Christians from secularists on the whole. Um, uh, you know, there are some Christians who are essentially secularists, and there are some, some secularists who actually hold to Christian morality. But 
on any of these issues that divide us, I'm willing to, to, to have the debate exclusively on the grounds of human reason, exclusively, just the common ground of human reason. In fact, let's have a debate over whether the Christian faith is true with no presuppositions from, from, from revelation of any kind, just on the ground of human reason.